Welcome to episode 47 of The Photo Show. Our guest for this episode is Stephen Hilger, chair of the photography department at Pratt Institute and uh, recently had his book published and um, we had a great conversation with him, didn't we, Michael? Yeah, we, you know, we, it was a, a really um, interesting conversation because it, it touched on a lot of things that you know we have in common uh, as photographers and uh, uh, graduates of Columbia and so... Um, it's, and educators it's, and everything right, else. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Um, running programs and all kinds of things. And um, it runs a little bit long. You know, we'll, we'll try to keep our introduction short, but um, that's because, you know, we, we do touch on a lot of subjects. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got some alumni news. Um, oh, good. Uh, Claudio Nolasco is getting married next weekend. Oh, congratulations, Claudio. Yeah. Um, let's see. Eileen Quinlan, who you might remember from last year when she had just had her solo show or was having a solo show coming up. Uh, she just returned from uh, having her work in the Venice Biennale. Oh, wow. I mean, she has a fantastic career going. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the work that they chose for the Biennale is is uh, these nudes that she's been doing in her bathroom, like pressing herself up against uh her uh, shower stall glass because trying to like steal time to make work in between being the mother of two young kids and all this other stuff. So it's it's a kind of atypical work for her that they they showed. That that is an interesting concept because uh, that is the the time to yourself. Exactly. Which and she, I just she gave an artist talk for the uh, summer photography intensive at Columbia yesterday, and she spoke about that about like stealing time for yourself, being alone in the shower. Right. Yep. Exactly. Speaking of festivals and things, you know, the Art Basel is coming up, but they now have a photo Basel that also goes along with Art Basel. I wonder if they're going to bring that to Miami, too. They're just trying to, like, ex now that photography is officially part of the art world, I guess, they're yeah. having photo Basel in Switzerland. Did you know about that? No, it's a, which is kind of separating it again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, strange. I guess it's just, you know, there's just so much art fair stuff that can go on. but um, And photography does tend to um when it is at a show or a group show there it does tend to dominate in terms of quantity so maybe they just needed yeah. to give it a bit more space yeah be interesting to see if that continues on to miami at some time in the future mm. uh, other events for those of you in new york and I, I do know that we have a bit of a new york bias here just in telling you about stuff but uh, that's why i threw in switzerland and uh, venice <laughs> <laughs> how very international of you <laughs> exactly but uh coming up at the uh, Baxter Street Camera Club of New York on June 16th is the zine and self-published photo book fair. Mm. That'd be interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of Do you have dates had, on that at all? or uh, June 16th through 18th, that oh. weekend. Did you say that and I just repeated that? Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> that way we double plug it, I guess. Good. <laughs> uh, we had Libby Pratt on, if you guys remember, a couple of, um, couple episodes ago, and she is, I assume, part of the putting that together. Um, and last thing I wanted to mention, an interesting show um, that Susan Mizalis has up at Higher Pictures. It's photographs she took of these Prince Street girls, so-called. She called them Prince Street girls from uh, these young girls that she ran into in Little Italy back in 1976. Oh, and that shows okay. up, Yeah, for a little while. So if you're in the city, go check that out. Oh, sounds good. Yeah, yeah those are my events. So uh, got anything else, Michael, you want to mention before we jump into Steven? No, no, not really. <laughs> 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 well, there you go. So without no, that's further good. That was a good list, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to let's get to the show because, like I said, it's a little longer than usual. And uh, oh, there was one thing I wanted to mention uh, during the episode. Stephen mentions a link to AmbassadorArchive.net, 
and it is ambassadorarchive.org. All right. Pour yourself a glass of wine or have an espresso, and here we go. Oh, I'm way ahead of you. (laughs) All right, so uh, we'll talk soon. you haven't eaten lunch i'm hoping to go to salon carmine on 102nd and broadway for a slice of pizza if anyone would like to join me sure yeah do you know that place nope nope oh it's (laughs) a it's a wonderful little pizza place it's i was happy to see it was still there oh that's nice what did you discover that while you were here yes Ah. i was an undergraduate huh Yeah, you were an undergraduate. Are we starting? At, uh, you were an undergraduate <laughs> and a graduate at Columbia. Yes, I was. <laughs> and a graduate student. Yeah. So actually, um, Stephen, you are the uh, the fifth element of uh, SPQR. You're our fifth and final uh, guest from the first round of publishing uh, for SPQR. Uh, so you're uh, completing the uh, pentagram for us. Boy, that sounds vaguely... <laughs> Sat- oh, is it not pen- Maybe it's Pentagon. No, satanic there for both uh, the Pentagon and the Pentagram. I'll have right. to yeah. ponder that. But, <laughs> but I'm glad to complete the circle. Yes. Yeah. Let's make it a circle. That's All much right. more friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great. So um, we we're not gonna we're just gonna jump around. But why don't we? Since you mentioned that, why don't we just go right into back of town, right? So. Um, uh, you are the we we mentioned all the other books and now we're finally getting to you and um back of town is this uh your first real first book i mean you've had your photographs published in other uh in other small like parts of other books that were published right it's definitely the first your first monograph monograph first book and which was something that everyone had in common i think for the first which was nice first my first five first books yeah it's incredible so these are all photographs that you made in New Orleans in one neighborhood, uh, and the title is Back of Town, right? Yes, I I was living in New Orleans during the period I was teaching at Tulane, and I was looking for things to photograph as, as one does, and I found myself drawn to a certain building, the Charity Hospital, which had been emptied after the storm. This was three years after the storm, which makes it 2008, and is, that, is that the hospital where all those people are left behind? Yeah, it yeah. is. So it was just a, a really horrific situation. And I think as a as a newcomer to New Orleans, it was it was impossible not to constantly be thinking about the recent history as well as the longer history. I think it's such a, a interesting city in that it's so soaked in history and it's so visible. Yeah. But I Everywhere I looked in that, in the first few years I was in New Orleans, you could see the the water line, so to speak. You could see the scars of Katrina. But I was also interested in the architecture. So I was interested in the narrative of the place, but I was also interested in the, the building itself of Charity Hospital. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the, the recent history I was interested in, which was a horrible history, I was interested in the longer history in that it was the second oldest public hospital in the United States. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Um, not the physical building there, but as an institution. And that was obviously 
an important part of life in the city. People think of charity as, you know, Dr. John was born there and people, you know, your neighbor was born there and people really identify with the place. But the building also reminded me of another building I had been photographing yeah, I was gonna earlier. Say this, well, are you going to say the Ambassador? Yes, yeah, the, yeah. the Ambassador Hotel. And it's not as if the architecture was that similar, although the early 20th century time frame was similar and the the kind of size of the place was similar it was this huge concrete monolithic structure so i was poking around trying to find a way to photograph the place and i ended up reading a newspaper article about an adjacent neighborhood that had been marked for demolition and the newspaper article was published in the New York Times. It wasn't published in the Times-Picayune. And I think that's an interesting indication of how um, the situation in New Orleans was also almost not spoken of. And in New Orleans itself. Yeah, the systematic destruction, planned destruction of this neighborhood was really swept under the carpet. But it made the national news. It made the newspaper of record. So here I am in New Orleans reading in the New York Times about the the destruction of this neighborhood. It occurred to me that it was right around the corner from this hospital. And this hospital at this point stood empty years after Katrina and still today in 2017 is still empty. And instead they built, they plan to build two new hospitals in New Orleans. And this would would occur in the footprint, what was called the footprint of what the newspapers called Lower Mid City. Mm. But I know, it's just you, like Brooklyn, where it's the name, some of the I know some are historic names, but then there's also the the new names that the real estate developers come up with. Exactly, I think that it's not a name that anyone living in the city was really familiar with. So it was something that was an invention of, in this case historic preservationists and the newspaper media mm -hmm. apparatus. And I had some peculiar conversations with people as I was photographing in New Orleans in this neighborhood where I would say, what's the name of the neighborhood? And they would just look at me like I was crazy, like it was a preposterous question. And it took me a while to figure it out, but over a meal with a good friend of mine, Sally Main, in New Orleans, who had lived her whole life in town. I, said, I, I described to her where I was photographing and behind Charity Hospital, and she said, oh, well, that's back of town. Hmm. And so over time, I, I realized, you know, what I could refer to the place as in my mind. I mean, for years, I referred to it in my notes and in my negative sleeves as lower mid city but i think of it now as the back of town and the back of town is is an interesting um, idea because it it's one of those names that can refer to different places in new orleans and mean different things to different people and there's different back backs of town and there's a very well-known back of town that has to that happens to be a cradle of um jazz music and black culture and you know, this is near there, but not, you know, what some maybe music historians would think of as one back of town mm -hmm. and where Trombone Shorty has an album called Back of Town, which I think refers to a very specific um, 
area, you know, in between certain streets. And then there's this other back of town, which I have noted as the, the space between the streets that were marked for demolition in this neighborhood, in this kind of general part of um, mid-city New Orleans. And back of town is much better title than uh, lower, lower mid-city. Mid right. yeah. I think <laughs> so. <laughs> you, know, you have us um, really um, moving, funny, and uh, traumatic description of watching this slow parade of the historic homes being moved out right. on tractor trailers and cut into pieces to fit through under the wires and around the corners and things like that. And, and you have a quote from someone you, you heard say, well, there goes the neighborhood. Right. Which, I, I literally heard someone call that out on a very strange day where the historic preservationists and whoever the people in charge were of this organized demolition had a campaign to quote unquote save the neighborhood by saving some of the homes and allocating them to be moved to another part of town. But it was very strange because if you looked at the the houses that were chosen, they weren't ideal to be reused. They might have been in more disrepair. It seemed like they had been chosen at random. Mm. And also skipping ahead, I, I learned later that many of them just sat along the side of the road never to be inhabited so it seemed like that sounds like someone got a contract yeah someone got a contract <laughs> and it seemed like some sort of good pr but yeah i and once I you went cut the roof see, off and yeah cut, and cut them down from if they're 60 exactly. feet, cutting them down i mean then who's really going to put that back together i mean exactly so it was very strange to see those go down and i i, I think of a parade because there's such a vibrant culture in the streets of parades and second lines in new orleans that uh, many of us may know about through visits to new orleans or popular culture films and television shows like treme has done a really good job at, at looking at that but there's a really unique culture where people march in the streets throughout the year in their crews or you know, marching together, celebrating the unique lifestyle of New Orleans. And I think that these houses moving down the street was such uh, intense contrast to that. It was just the opposite of that. I think of the parades as being in color, vibrant, uh, pleasurable, and then the houses moving down the street, going who knows where, um, just as a kind of miserable spectacle and someone bellowed that out and it you know it was it was kind of unbelievable it mm -hmm. was true right it, there it went there goes the neighborhood yeah it's not gentrification no, it's literally. literally on the backs of right. trailers that right the yeah. Neighborhood. Yeah. i found one thing that is refreshing about your book um because there are a number of post-katrina books or even post-katrina photographic essays for for example and of course i think the first one that came out that everyone saw was that robert polidori one which mm -hmm. is to call it a book is generous it's like a gravestone that thing is like i don't know how many plates it has and it's like it's exhausting to even flip right. through it after a while you're like i mean i think it's a great probably historic record of what happened you know and and all those buildings and seeing all that but 
they lo- it loses its uh, impact a little bit, and after a while, you're like, okay, it's like another line on a uh, on a building, another spray painted thing, another this, and, they do, it, and it just becomes um, overwhelming, and and you don't, I don't think you look at them as individual photographs so much anymore, as more like mm-hmm. this, you know, huge document, right? When when I was in. It's a it's an interesting comparison to make, and I appreciate it. When I was in New Orleans and I, I was teaching, I was spending a lot of time, of course, looking at the city through my camera, through just being in the city, through photographs taken by my students throughout the city, and through the historical work that had been done in New Orleans and the recent work. And we spent a lot of time looking at what happened in the city in August 2005 and onward by both photographers who lived in the city and photographers that came out came from outside the city and I was always really aware of that insider outsider relationship now Robert Polidori came almost immediately um, as soon as the waters had receded and that that book which um, those pictures came came to be the book after the flood are are interesting in that they're so immediate. They mark a space in time that is fairly fast in between the destruction and then maybe the second destruction, the destruction of the home, the destruction of the social life in the in the home, and of course the physical destruction. But then all of those places he depicted were just destined to be raised and destined to be destroyed. And I think that he photographed something that perhaps the homeowners and the families that lived in those houses didn't even see those places in that condition. They, many of them never came back. And there's something interesting about that. There's something about the book that, as you said, as a gravestone, it was so massive and it was such a kind of high-end object to consume. And I think that there's been some commentary on that. There's a writer named Dieter Rollstrat who wrote an essay which I would recommend for anyone interested in New Orleans, photography in New Orleans, Katrina, and also the idea of catastrophe called On Catastrophelia. And he talks about that impulse to that artists have traditionally had that has been very strong in photography to, and also in cinema to depict disaster. And he, he uses that, that book as a, as a jumping off point. But in my work, I think, um, you know, I was there after and I, str- I struggled for a long time even think- thinking of my, my work as Katrina work or post-Katrina work because that hadn't really occurred to me when I was making the work. I, I talked earlier about how the scars of the trauma of Hurricane Katrina were very visible, but I, I, I somehow wasn't really positioning the work Maybe naively, maybe somewhat unconsciously as Katrina work. But when I began to show the work and talk about the work and publish the work before Back of Town in, in smaller projects, it definitely came up. And I had to be realistic with myself and, of course, realize that it was, in fact, work that was about the post-Katrina social landscape. But I think that, and I became more aware and more comfortable of that. But I think that it's certainly a longer view. It's a longer view of what had happened. And it's also, it's a very specific moment in time that's 
2008 to 2012. So if it's about Katrina, it's about that period after Katrina of those years. I was in New Orleans a month ago for a book event for Back of Town at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art. And when I was talking to people in town, there was a lot of talk about how the city had changed since I had been there, since 2012, and the rapid change. And some people said, you know, this work really was the beginning of this most recent period of some sort of massive um, destruction of neighborhoods and building of condos and building of malls. And I don't really know enough about it as far as what I've kind of witnessed in New Orleans because I've been there so so few days since that time. But it was interesting to hear a few people talking about that. You know, I also went back to Tampa, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in January, end of December, beginning of January, and uh, a similar sort of thing, like a lot of things I had photographed weren't there anymore. So right. even if you don't think that you're necessarily doing something timely, you know, it's just the nature, of, a bit of the nature of photography when you're photographing out in the world, right. that uh, things can just change out from under you, and then you wind up having this little short, uh, several year record of, of an area. Right. And then, <laughs> You know. Absolutely. I think that's been my experience since my childhood growing up in Los Angeles and spending a lot of time looking out the the window in the backseat of the car and, and looking at the landscape move from in front of me to the side of me to behind me and having these touchstones of point A to point B and then suddenly they're gone. And as it was nothing that was that significant to me until I think I became older and started to realize that some of those places had a had a significance to the culture or maybe were restaurants that my family would frequent and there was some kind of loss there about the place you would go to for Sunday dinners being gone. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually my my photographic work has been a lot about how places change and places um have a you know physical transition but how that physical transition also tells us a lot about our history and how we can look at the history through the the present of a photograph and also look to uh the future through that present in the photograph which you know reminds me of john zarkovsky's introduction to the photographer's eye where in the in the section of time he writes about photography being discrete parcel of time but only alluding to the past and the future you know absolutely being in that present and i think he describes the ability to look at the past as through the relics that are that are seen by us now and he talks about that walker evans photograph right or at least that comes up the walker photograph of the car right exactly and the future as a as a prophecy of what's visible in the present too so I think that's that's an idea that I think about a lot, not per se when I'm photographing, but probably when I'm when I'm looking at the photographs but after. That's interesting because I was also thinking you're you were at Tulane from 2008 to 2012. Yes, and so you're doing this work. You're teaching students right. who probably a, a good number experienced Katrina personally. That even though you you weren't originally thinking of it as Katrina work, I. I would guess uh, being so um, close to the event and having students who had lived through the event that that the stories and the experiences and, and whatever art they were making 
probably seeped in to you know your mind and and your subconscious while you were making the work as well. I would think. I think so. There were. And, and I, I bring that up because, you know, Tchaikovsky's idea is that right. you just have the picture and you can't see the past, you can't see the future. It's it's just that dis- discrete parcel of time. Right. Uh, but when you're working, of course, there's a lot that can inform what you're doing while you're shooting. Right. And I think what was what was interesting about working with the students was that in New Orleans, as a newcomer to New Orleans, that I could see so much more of the city. I mean, of course, you know, some of the students would stay closer to the campus and I think we know that you can find interesting pictures on a campus but some students you might want to encourage to I don't allow go, campus photos <laughs> go past that point yeah <laughs> and um you know I think that there were we were very conscious of the the tropes but just because something is a trope doesn't doesn't make it wrong but you know back to the Polidori Photographs, we see a lot of that graffiti that on the outside of houses that was marked by emergency response teams that would mark the date and it was a quadrant that would mark the date and, you know, whether there were bodies found or whether there were pets found. And you would see a lot of that graffiti that became older and older that would turn up through students' photographs, and I think that it showed their their interest in the city and the history of the city, but also, you know, just more broadly speaking and in terms of the history of photography and visual culture, there's been an obsession in 20th century photography with the graffito, and it's something that, you know, it's simultaneously a picture and writing, and... It's something that sometimes needs to be decoded as much as read. You know, it's sort of interesting to think about that through the context of other people's photographs. I think that was the first time that those that type of uh, writing became part of like the national uh, that the image of what that looked like became part of like the national consciousness, right? Right. I don't know if they the emergency workers always used to mark floods and hurricanes and tornado building damage that way but as soon as i think of it i always yes. think of katrina right. i'm yeah. i'm not sure i mean i suspect it might be something that's in in wider use but i think that there were so many photographs and video and film sequences that were produced um during katrina after katrina that that became such a visible yeah Image. I mean, there were others that I I remember, like there was a kind of um, melting ceiling fan mm. that one would see, and many others. And yeah, speaking of the tropes of yeah. what came out of it, right? Uh, my, you know, my mother was born in New Orleans. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, my mother was born in New Orleans. My grandfather lived there for many many years, decades, right. and uh, of course, my uncle also was, and they. That my mother and my uncle did not want to go back and see the city post Katrina. They're like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, I mean, they are both jumping right on all the conspiracy theories too about you know what was blown, what wasn't, right. what was being allowed to be destroyed, and all that. And uh, but they said, you know, it's just not going to be the same. New Orleans is not going to be the same. Of course, it changed already, you know, a right. lot since their childhood. But there were still like core bits of it that of these historic buildings that you know, they lived in a railroad shack and they mm-hmm. didn't and they just like i don't want to go back and see that 
And it will be interesting to see, like, even your photographs, how that is documenting this part of time that, you know, 25, 30 years from now, you know, might be a struggle to even see some of that stuff there, right? Right. It was really interesting to me at the book signing in New Orleans that I mentioned. There were a few people that came early and I thought, oh, this is this is great. I'm so excited. People are just in this book. And it turned out that the first wave of people were all former residents of the neighborhood. And there was a article in the Gambit Weekly uh, local paper about the book and about the event. And that was really fortunate because it was able to broaden that audience beyond the art audience, the photography book audience. And there were people that I had met photographing during that time that came, but there were also people who had just grown up in that neighborhood or had cousins that had grown up in that neighborhood. And they really, they wanted to see it again. And so, you know, the way we, uh, the pictures that came out of Katrina, you know, right after it happened and during it happened, of course, and and the way we remember it, it, it's also, it was also highly politicized. I mean, this was, if I remember correctly, it was a, kind of the first big test for this massive new homeland security apparatus that had been put together after 9-11. And, you know, we had a, a highly uh, partisan administration, of course, and the country is very split with uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And there was all this criticism about the way he handled it and everything. And so I think the other reason why it's, it's the politics of it has seeped into it is because it was such a politically charged atmosphere. And so the fairness then the the destruction and, and how thing how it was decided what was going to be destroyed and what was going to be built and carted away was in a, a this super, you know, politicized charged atmosphere as well. And I think that affects the way we remember it as well. I would say um, an image comes to mind that the White House released of former President Bush flying, flying above. Yeah. Yes, looking out the window. The ruins of, of the landscape. And you know that was very emblematic to people, obviously, of the distance, yeah. the extreme distance. And a predominantly African-American neighborhood was destroyed. Right. And so that was, that was very telling. I think that I was, I was interested in everyday experience in the neighborhood that I was depicting as it was winding down, it was the only way I could experience the neighborhood. And I went multiple times a week. I took a, a bus that was a two-lane medical center bus that went from the two-lane campus to the, two, to the medical area. And it was a 20-minute bus ride, a little time to load my film. <laughs> get organized, drink a cup of coffee. And then I was there and I'd walk through, talk to people, photograph, but experience what was happening in the place because even though it had limited time, there was still life persisting. There were still people sweeping the streets. There were still people opening up their doors for business. There were still people moving in Hmm. to homes. There were people remodeling homes. So I was interested in being there and bearing witness to what was happening. But at the same time, I recognize in myself and my position as an artist who came from outside of the neighborhood, outside of the city, was just a visitor there for a few years. I recognize that there was a certain distance between me and the subject as well. There was a certain distance between 
me and the persons that I photographed. There was a certain distance between me and the architecture in the neighborhood. And I could, of course, try to negotiate that distance by entering through a doorway or striking a conversation with someone or getting to know a few of the subjects through multiple visits and even planned meetings. But as I was editing the book with Thomas Roma for SBQR, and I really became aware of, and you know, through Tom's guidance, I think my own distance. And it, I was kind of, I think that revealed itself in, in the pictures. And I think I tried to be honest about, you know, kind of being there, but not being really um, part of the place and trying to, trying to know it through the photographs and trying to understand history, but, you know, not really being a participant and so I think that's something there's, for me, there's a, there's a tension there as, as an artist and as a photographer that I think can exist in, in the medium a lot. And I think it's something that a lot of people are interested in talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, the majority of the interiors are of buildings that aren't, aren't occupied, right. right? There's that great one with the icicle on the line, right. and then there's uh, other interiors. But uh, the only interior that we get to see where people are still occupying is right at the beginning of the book that great photograph of everyone sitting at the bar right right and uh but it's not it is not like a portrait of the neighborhood in the sense of you going into people's living rooms and seeing how people are living and all that it's, it is very right. much about this architectural expira exploration of the of buildings in the neighborhood and it being destroyed and of course there's two aerial photographs on the cover and in the mm -hmm. back where you you see, uh, you know, this area that's been raised to the ground too. So there's there's that element to it where it just, you know, literally right. Gets, I wanted becomes to, an empty square of land. You know, I wanted to show that did you, you, complete wait, I, picture. I, I want to know. Did you rent a helicopter? What? How'd you get that? I photograph, did. By the way, yeah, <laughs> I did. I always I, wanted to do um, that. So you actually did. You rented a helicopter. It was it was yeah. also something I had I had wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, everyone. Come I on, know. Come on, and, Michael. Of course. Uh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> I I took a few. Few, few trips with Gulf South helicopters. Yeah. And did they open the door and like strap you in? Or you <laughs> yeah, just I was I was strapped in. I was um, a little worried that my camera was going to catch the wind. And yeah. Bump around <laughs> with, a little too with much. With you uh, attached to it. <laughs> in some of the wide angle shots, you can you can see the the landing gear of the nice <laughs> of the helicopter. But yeah. I was I was interested in in trying to have that. Not complete, but that um, that really, you know, I guess there's only one way to describe it, that aerial view and able to see the markers of the neighborhood that had been destroyed. And, um, you know, I think that it's something I, I often point to, to people who are, are looking at the pictures, that what you see within this, within this book is, is gone. And the... The picture that that absence it, it is depicted in that um, raised area that's been scraped clean, but of course that absence is also something in itself. That absence is something significant. It's something politically significant. I was thinking about your question a little bit more and thinking about a idea I think about a lot in my work that Walter Benjamin had likened empty pictures of Paris by Atje as a crime scene, hmm. empty urban spaces. And I think of that empty 
neighborhood, that neighborhood that's been wiped away as a crime scene. And Benjamin also wrote about photographs being the standard evidence for historical occurrences. He wrote that at a time where when photography was really becoming a mass form through newspapers and just passing the threshold of being something that the bourgeoisie had in family albums and you know institutions had to more of an everyday citizen being able to from Julia to read. Margaret Cameron and Lartigue down to uh, yeah. every little boy who could get a right. Kodak box camera yeah exactly and he also said that or wrote that these photographs acquire a hidden political significance and so I think there's something about making work bearing witness and just doing it being drawn I'm drawn to things that are changing and things that don't seem quite right and describing them and then we'll see what they're about later right well I've got a great transition here so there's a photo one of the photographs in the I noticed that I'm saying that's gonna be great ahead of time <laughs> yes one of the photographs <laughs> I hope it's great yeah, exactly. no, now we're all built up exactly one of the photographs in the book is uh, has on a building uh, an ad for the Holiday Inn right which is by the Superdome which mm-hmm. of course Superdome like you know some people paid attention to it before Katrina but certainly after Katrina it became like this huge thing but thinking of a Holiday Inn and a hotel and now all of the things we've been talking about about memory and history and you know centered around architecture it's a Great segue to talk about uh, all the photographs you made at the Ambassador Hotel right. back in your, your home city mm-hmm. of L.A. where you were born. So why don't we uh, transition over to that now and talk about that body of work? Because that's, that's a, I think, maybe people in L.A. growing up, you grew, you were growing up there in the 80s and stuff, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe in, which is right when it closed, maybe you were more aware of it, but it wasn't something that was on my radar other than from the Kennedy assassination. And even then, that was just a name, right? So right. so you actually, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that body of work? I know it's the Ambassador Hotel, but that's not your title for the work, right? What, <laughs> right. We'll get to the title. Yeah, the yeah, title yeah. is an earworm. So the Ambassador Hotel is uh, was the West Coast version of the Grand Hotel. And it was built in the 1920s on a very major street in Los Angeles called Wilshire Boulevard. Which everyone's heard of Wilshire, right? Yeah, it's like it's pretty famous. Wilshire. It's pretty famous. And yeah. I think that one of the one of the things about Wilshire is that it had has been called a horizontal downtown in Los Angeles. Because that's the nature of Los Angeles that instead of being a vertical city, of course there's vertical parts of Los Angeles, but instead of being thought of a vertical city like Chicago or New York, it's thought of more horizontally and just kind of moving out. And there was a downtown area in a east of in the eastern part of Los Angeles, and in the twenties that downtown started to move towards the west. And in that in that process, they built the Ambassador Hotel, and it had a really storied history. And I wasn't really aware of this history, this rich history of. Hollywood and politics and even sports taking place at this hotel. And I wasn't really aware of even the physical space of the building. It was closed in 1989. I guess I would have been... 14. 14 there. Thank you. <laughs> I had to think about that. <laughs> Guy was doing the math. <laughs> and it it's a very large... I think it's... I don't know how many acres... It had its own zip code, 977. Wow. That's how, how big of a place was it had. Mm. 
its own had multiple ballrooms, restaurants, grounds, swimming pools. It was set back and closed and dark. And I really never realized it was there until I got an email one day from a friend. A mass email said, save the ambassador. She grew up across the street in a building overlooking the ambassador. And she was, was pained to learn that the building was going to be torn down. She informed me about the importance, the historical importance of the place. I thought, this sounds interesting. I became dedicated to trying to get into the place and photograph inside the place, outside the place. And it became so interesting to me because the more and more I learned about the place, I thought, there's so much interesting history that's taking place here. Marilyn Monroe was discovered here. The first Academy Awards took place here. You had spoken about Robert Kennedy being assassinated there on the the day of the California primaries in 1968 at a victory party. In the kitchen. No Killed less. in the kitchen. Yeah, and that was really, for, for many people, the beginning of the end of the ambassador and may have marked, a, at least psychologically, a decline in the place and interest in the place and really tarnished. I became aware of this, but I was so fascinated by the fact that it was going to be lost and torn down. If somehow the physical structure of the place represented history and represented what was possible and memories that had taken place there. But I also became really interested in that film history there because not only was Marilyn Monroe discovered there, but the graduate hotel scenes were filmed there. The Is that affair. where the pool scene was? Oh, the affair. The affair, oh. the lobby scene oh, where... Right. Yes. Benjamin is very nervous about going upstairs. Mm -hmm. That's in the grand uh -huh. lobby space of the hotel. And interestingly enough, in 1989, when the hotel closed its doors, it became a giant film set, as often happens to empty spaces in Los Angeles. And so all sorts of movies and videos and B-movies and artworks were made there. And I was really conscious of that when I was there because... I would be photographing a room and there would be this elegant carpet almost with a psychedelic pattern and adjacent to another carpet with a differing psychedelic pattern. And I couldn't figure out, you know, was it real? Was it imaginary? And so I thought the space was so charged because it was both of those things simultaneously in a way that Los Angeles is mm. itself, in a way that we we think about we think about and see Los Angeles so much through the fictional elements of Los Angeles that are produced by the big industry there, which is Hollywood. So I thought that this, the hotel really represented that. And I called the work, I called the work through a show I did, Hotel California. And I think that, you know, of course I was thinking about the Eagles <laughs> album and that, what? No. that <laughs> song and, you know, as a place that doesn't really exist, but it's and I think mystical that, in a way. Right, right, but it's mystical and yeah. and you can never leave, right. as the lyrics say. <laughs> and you talk about, when you describe the work, you and you, you mentioned it just now, the, the kind of truth and fiction of it all, mm -hmm. right? The fact that it is Hollywood and the fact that this was a, a real place and now the home of a fictional place for many other mm -hmm. venues and things like that. Right. And, and that, that, of course, speaks uh, perfectly about photography as right. well, right? The whole truth and fiction of a, a photograph is, is wrapped up right into that. Definitely. I mean, I think that I'm depicting the space as it 
as it is, but there's so much that is outside the frame makes it certain that I'm not giving you the whole truth of the situation. There's so much selection that takes place, so much editing as you're there, the choices that you make and the choices in the editing and the aesthetic choices that you make and the political choices that you make. I think it's worth mentioning since we were first talking about back of town that these photographs are in color and that you do yes. you photograph in black and white and color, right? I or, do. And or probably it, mostly in color. Yeah. So so but I've gone back, back and forth was a little bit of a is an anomaly a little bit in that it's black I think and white. So I think I hadn't photographed in black and white for a long time. I right. think that I color seemed too pleasurable as David Goldblatt had described the work that he made in uh, apartheid era South Africa, the black and white pictures, as um, he said that color would be too sweet for that subject matter. And I think it was borrowing from that thinking in a sense of, you know, the black and white pictures don't indicate literally the colorfulness of the city. It's, and metaphorically, the colorfulness of the city. And that's a part of the story in New Orleans that is a story that's worth telling and told by so many great photographers like Keith Calhoun and Chandra McCormick and many others. But I was focused on this crime story. Yeah. And of course, with the the ambassador hotel the and you were just talking about the psychedelic carpets mm -hmm. and you know but there is that lushness and the lush lushness of the fabrics and everything and uh, one of the photographs uh you've got two photographs that show sort of interiors large interior spaces mm -hmm. uh at least on your website you probably have more but um the one that i recall uh, is specifically is this one where you're on a stage and the lights are oh, on right. and it, it feels as if you could be like going out to perform or something and the color of the seats and the lights and the stage edge I mean it has a I'm glad you mentioned that picture because that picture is very different from most of the pictures in the in the project in that that picture isn't the Ambassador Hotel. Whoa. That picture... <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> ...is what's called RFK School. Oh. And they built... And I'm glad you brought it up because we can talk a little bit about why they tore down the Ambassador. But it's a replica. It's the, the school auditorium. And I think it's the literally the most expensive public school project to date anywhere was this educational multiplex that was built in the site of the ambassador hotel so they they wanted to have some nods to the history and i think they did it in a very disney-esque way which one could expect oftentimes in los angeles that kind of surface treatment understanding of history by building a auditorium that looked like the original coconut grove nightclub in the ambassador hotel so, but the furnishings are so reminiscent of the past. But I was thinking so much about, you know, being on that stage, simultaneously looking at the past and looking to the future. But those seats are going, are going to be where the, the, the children of the school, you know, occupy the space. Mm -hmm. And so, but I was just thinking on that stage, just being on the edge of the past and the present. But back to the school and the tearing down of the ambassador, this was a case of cultural warfare between the preservationists who wanted to save the hotel 
and residents of the community who wanted to build a school. And it was a long battle. And I think, you know, I have another picture of a, of a soccer field of, of some young men playing soccer. And you can see the shell of the ruins of the hotel in the background. And so that's that relic of the past. But there's the youth in the foreground. And prophecy or promise too, of the yeah. future. Yeah. yeah, and soccer significantly, I think, in, in, in our country and in city, you know, it's something that has really been an export from outside of the country. And I think of it as, you know, in Los Angeles as being like such a, a favorite pastime of the Latino communities and, of course, others. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think in that particular location at that time, I think that makes sense. And um, I mean, it's, it's yeah. two noble battles in a way, right? A, yeah. a school or preserve this historical building, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I think that I, I would go back and forth in my mind. And also, I think in New Orleans, it became interesting where there was a similar contest between preservationists wanting to preserve the neighborhood, but one would have to ask for what purpose. I mean, because... And so preserving the neighborhood versus building a new hospital. So in both cases in Los Angeles and in New Orleans, we were talking about a public service for the community. But I think that the criticism from the other side is not the service for the community, but perhaps the apparatus that's necessary to provide that service for the community, the hundreds of millions of dollars that need to be spent and you know, in the case of New Orleans, the displacement of a community. The preservationists in New Orleans, I tried to work with them and understand what they were doing. I was very interested in lending photography to their interests. But it was a conversation that was never really possible or never really completed. I thought I started to become a little bit upset with the fact that there wasn't a preservation of a neighborhood happening of the people that lived there because they had already gone. They had already been pushed out. It then became the preservation of the physical architecture, which of course would be for someone else to come in and move into and polish it up. It would have and to so be I think that a population problematic. the resources to yes. rehabilitate these things in historical perfection and right. it would be a completely different neighborhood anyway. But so I think it just, it really does become a contest between the, the past and the mm-hmm. and the future. If only Trump had been interested in the Ambassador Hotel, we might have. Had... <laughs> well, do you know this? No, no. Oh, it's no. so interesting you say that because he actually was for a period of time, and at the time in 1989, when LA Unified School District took the property by eminent domain, yeah. Trump was the owner of the building, and it's part of the really bizarre an idiosyncratic history of the place. And he imagined a giant complex and skyscraper. And of course he was, I can only imagine that he was interested in the cachet of the Hollywood glamour and elite to market whatever he was selling. And it's one of Trump's failures in a sense that he was, you know, unable to, um, win against the government in this case and so you know in a sense it's um it's something it's something to to celebrate at least that although we still lost the physical manifestation of the ambassador hotel 
We didn't lose it to Trump. We lost it to education. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's something there. And right? I think this is a good end for me to mention that simultaneous to the pictures I was making, a good friend of mine, Annie Shaw, who I had met in Los Angeles. Who I went to grad school who with. Who you went to grad school with. So, yeah. so you know well, she was interested in the fact that I was was photographing the place and she said, we should do something together. And we settled on creating an archive of photographs and some other images that described what we just what we thought of as the idiosyncratic histories of the hotel and what i mean by that is it wasn't the capital h history of kennedy being assassinated although we're not ignoring that but we were more interested in the person who raymond who was the production manager of the film film location company resident in the hotel who would show aspiring film location units the grounds and it yeah, was your zombies could come in here exactly and they go through the lobby or you could you could do a you could do a um, MTV hair video here <laughs> in the lobby and Joseph Mendez who was a really interesting character former highlight player mm. professional highlight player who lived in the neighborhood and fed the feral cats ah. there were something like 30 40 cats on the grounds of the empty hotel Oof. and there was a group of people who including joe who came to feed the cats so we have pictures of joe's cats that joe shared with us and that tells a story about the hotel mm. a different kind of story about the daily life in the hotel than one could describe from my pictures after the fact of the vibrancy right. that had formerly existed there. And that archive is online. That archive is on there. Yeah. It's ambassadorarchive.net. Yeah, we'll link to it for sure. Yeah. Great. And you also created a little a booklet too at one point, didn't you? I did. I, I, I had an exhibition at um, a space that... I don't think is still around, but it was in Midtown. It was called the Muse Center for Photography and the Moving Image. And Liam Davis and H.P. Garcia invited me to have a show there of photographs. And we also had physical photographs from the online archive, from the Ambassador Archive, and which included a lot of 8 by 10 photographs, uh, promotional photographs of, of stars that had performed at the hotel from Bruce Springsteen to Frank Sinatra to Louis Armstrong. And, you know, everyone went through there. But uh, Muse published a, a book um, of pictures of maybe 10 or so pictures. And uh, the historian Norman Klein wrote a short essay. And I was, I was really honored um, to work with Norman Klein. He wrote a book about the history of forgetting in Los Angeles. And that was really my guidebook when I was photographing the ambassador. He doesn't write about the ambassador specifically, but he talks a lot about cultural memory and that idea of you know framing a place through its history and the idea that Los Angeles was unable to remember its own history was something that I really gleaned through Norman Klein's work. Mm -hmm. So it was really exciting to have him write something. And he really, you know, he wrote more about the 
the hotel and the place than about the photographs, but it's really great to. I think that's the only that. that's the only exhibition I've been to where it was all black walls. Like that's a, right. We, instead of a white cube, it was a black it was, cube. We 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 painted the walls black yeah. and spotlit the photographs. Yeah. To so it, it really felt yeah, it felt a little like dramatic, very dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll never approach. forget that. that I walk, like yeah. the elevator opened up. I think and you're like, ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the spotlighting in the black. It, it was it was strange. It was strange. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think and. Uh, my, my father lived in L.A. For, well, he, for, many, for many years, and I used to go visit him there in Santa Monica. And I remember him joking about how he would keep up with the, the historic preservation people. And it's mm-hmm. like, they're trying to save buildings that were built in the 60s. You know, it's right. like, that was like, A short ah, yeah, we've got to keep this stuff around. <laughs> right, yeah. And yet, you know, something like the Ambassador Hotel winds up uh, getting destroyed. But um, Right, I mean, built in the 20s, old by Yeah, LA. exactly. LA ancient, standards, ancient maybe, LA yeah, standards, yeah, like you said, 60s is old. I mean, yeah, it's LA of, was barely LA in the 20s. Right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, speaking of uh, getting out of LA, so right. you, so here you are, you're growing up in LA, and you think time to go to college, and you don't go anywhere on the West Coast. You go to the opposite side of the country. So maybe we'll hear about how horrible your parents are or something. But you decide you got to get away from LA, and you come all the way to Columbia University as for your undergrad. What, yeah, what was that decision? It's great to be here today. By the way, I I should have thanked you for having me here, but it's fortunate that we're we're here on the campus of Columbia University today because I've spent so much time here. Mm. Yeah. I ended up at Columbia. Did you apply to any West Coast schools or you want you knew you wanted I to come out here? Did I applied to some of the UC schools and some schools in the Northeast and I wanted to be in the city. I'm not sure why. My mother grew up in the city, and I didn't spend a lot of time in New York. I had visited a couple of times, but it was something that I was really curious about. I was interested in the history. I was interested in the writers and the artists and the vibrancy of the the city. And you know, the campus of Columbia really drew me to it. And Columbia was a was just a big big part of my life. Um, of course, taking photography classes with Thomas Roma was a made a huge uh, impact on me. Had you as a young did you person. do it in high school at all? Were you doing photography, or were your first photo classes here? I took one class in high school, and but I think, and then I actually took a class at Columbia before Tom was here. Hmm. He started the program in '96, and I took a class at Teachers College, and then he came, and everything changed, and then I was dying to take his class and I remember bringing in a portfolio of my work and it was a portfolio I can imagine of, how this went <laughs> I had a portfolio of pictures I had taken at rock and roll shows oh. pictures of surfaces of concrete and tar and rubber and nudes <laughs> and he threw me right out of there <laughs> but you know the thing is he threw me out of his office many times and out of the critique space many times. And I think it was, you know, it was interesting because I would often have ideas about things I wanted to do. And he would never really have it. He never really wanted to hear it. And he instilled in me uh, a belief in, you know, sort of making as the thinking. And that, um, you know, the difference in what you intended to do and what you did was something that he would 
he would speak about so often. And yeah, going back to the William Carlos Williams, no ideas, but in things, right? Exactly. Yeah. That chestnut. And, um, so I started off as a art history major and this would allow me to tell you about another professor who threw me out of their office. Ah, so I was, I was a theme <laughs> taking a class with, with we're, Rosalind we're getting ready to throw you out in about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I haven't even started. <laughs> so the class was Rosalind sur- Krauss. Okay. The class was surrealism. I went in for office hours because I wanted to ask her about the one paper we had to write and we could choose any topic and we had to work from one of the readings. But the one rule was that you couldn't use a essay by the quote unquote instructor, which was her. And I wanted to write about surrealism and photography and that was the only option was by her. So I made an appointment to go see her and I waited literally for hours outside of her office. And finally she summoned me into the chamber and we had a little small talk and it went pretty well. And then abruptly she said, what are you doing here? And I tried to explain as I did to you. And she said, wait a second. It occurred to her. I was an undergrad. She said, you're an undergraduate. And I said, yes, it's an undergraduate class. She said, I have no time for this. And I think what I realized at that point was she had a lot to offer intellectually through the course, through the lecture. But I longed for a different sort of discussion that would happen in the classroom. And I really found that in the studio setting. And I found that working with Thomas Roma and Tomas Vu Daniel and John Kessler, Gregory Amanoff, Stuart Diamond, many others. And that would happen simultaneously to working with great art history professors, including Jonathan Crary, Benjamin Buclo, but knowing what to expect uh, so in Buclo that context. was still here when you Buclo were here. was here, yeah. and the history of photography class was hugely influential on me as well. And, um, and you know, history classes with Andreas Hoysen, I think, really started me off on thinking about culture and memory and the work that he's done all around the world, but specifically in Germany after the war. And so I liked it so much that I came back for grad school. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that you went out of your way to avoid Michael when you were here. So you graduated in 98. That's right. (laughs) And then you come back uh, in 2001, in the fall of 2001, right after Michael graduated in the spring of 2001. So you're like... I'm sorry I missed him, but what's great about the program is that network um, yeah. that exists across these these two-year sequences. And I remember yeah. reaching yeah. out to Michael about a uh, Nova processor um, yes. because I was printing some Cibachromes at the time. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, boy. And, uh, I still so have my Nova handy. processor. Right. Hopefully with a ventilator. I jettisoned mine long ago. <laughs> yeah, so you, I want to, we got to ask though, so why come back why to come Columbia? Back to Columbia? So because like I was just speaking to someone who has uh, uh, got into Columbia, not in photography, but got a, a approach. They could either go to Columbia or Yale and uh, they're coming to Columbia 
partly because they went to Yale for undergrad and mm-hmm. they're like, I just need something new, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But uh, you'd already been here four years and then been out in the world a little bit. And then you, you right. uh, reapplied to come back to Columbia. I, I spent three years in Los Angeles and I should say that's when I became really the most interested in photography because I think I started to really get hooked on that changing landscape and making pictures, seeing what the world liked through those pictures over time and photographed a lot where I was living, my life there, different neighborhoods. But I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I had always had interesting relationships with the grad students while I was at, while I was an undergraduate. Conversations with George Rush, Sue DeBeer, Matthew Brannon, Laura Sellers, um, really interesting artists, Anibal Pella. And I knew that there was a great conversation happening. I knew the faculty. I knew the great resources existed there. You know, Tom was a, was a big part of it. I mean, I was, I was considering some other programs. I knew I wanted to work with Tom. I knew there were aspects of the conversation that we had had earlier that I wanted to continue. And I think Columbia had the best of both worlds and still does have the best of both worlds in the fact that we could have a, a very serious dialogue about photography and at the same time an interdis- interdisciplinary program at Columbia. And were you already interested in teaching at that time? Yeah, I was. I mean, again, I think, you know, thinking about Tom again and his great influence, I was really, you know, simultaneously fearful of his classes because I, I felt like a lot was on the line. I felt like I wanted to be successful in the classes. And as, the harder I tried to be successful, the sort of less successful I was on the surface of things. But I admired the way that he was able to, uh, you know, have convictions and about photography, about life, and you know, share that with with the students and um, you know his his great knowledge, you know, in his field, but outside the field in so many different things. And it was just a great model. And in grad school, I had the opportunity to be his teaching assistant, and then he hired me the summer after. And from there, I started teaching at some other schools in New York at NYU and at Pace. And at one point, I was teaching at all all three of those schools simultaneously. (laughs) And also working, I was working uh, in the news business, working for Bloomberg News, doing all those things. I was working as a photographer and a photo editor. Oh, wow. I, I mostly chained to the desk. You know, it was interesting to look at the world and to look at photography through that, through the machinations of that apparatus. And, you know, I thought it was going to be more interesting than it was for me in the end, but I'm glad that I had that experience and I got to see some things and I'm reminded that was my first helicopter rides were through that. Ah. And actually in Louisiana, going to a deep sea oil drill ship on a Chevron chopper, something like an hour and 30 minute ride in this giant chopper out to sea with a junket of other journalists who were literally throwing up, (laughs) (laughs) hadn't taken the drama mean. Oh man. Yikes. Uh, Well, we should also mention that another thing happened while you were here at Columbia, which is that you met your future wife. 
Catherine Wolkoff, right? I did. And she's we're gonna also give a everything away. We're going to give everything <laughs> yeah. away here. She's also a photographer. Now, is it true you met in photo one or you just met in the dark? You know, room? I think we met in photo two. Oh, photo two. And, okay, um, you know, I think that we had a lot of mutual friends and we were actually, she's going to kill me for saying this or <laughs> I'm going to, you know. <laughs> something i'm stuttering here but but we were competitive with each other in that in that space and i think you know we didn't we didn't get together romantically until later but i think that i think early on in that space i saw some differences in our aesthetics and interests hmm. in the medium and you know we talk about each other's work a lot and i think it's really interesting to think you know at that younger more volatile stage of a 20 year old guy looking at work around him and not being as open to it i was probably really critical of you know all the kind of work around me and thinking like you know what i was doing was the most important thing and um i think that's necessary at least at some point yeah. yeah and so i think that you know i saw her work as being really interesting and being really different from mine and that was something that you know I had a lot of I had a lot of respect for her, but I had a different vision. And it was later when we were in grad school, when I was at Columbia and she was at Yale, that we started to see each other a little bit more here and there throughout the city. And even at um, I think after grad school, we would see each other in that glorious period of time when everyone was using the color rental labs oh, all around yeah. the city and. Hot you know, bed of romance. She you would like um, waiting for those. Prints well, you know to the thing out. is that I tried to talk to her, but she was always reading a book, <laughs> and that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and but, of course, you wound up uh, uh, being represented by Sasha Wolf, who we've had on the uh, on right. the podcast. Mm-hmm. So we're like we're closing in on the loop. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, she she has new representation, but you'll have to yeah. you'll have to invite Kate on the show to right. learn more about that. <laughs> Find out. So. But uh, but you know, of course. Um, but people, I, wait, I don't want to. But you know, it's interesting because people always want to talk about Kate. It's one of those things where. Well, I, um, I, it's more. Forget. It's not no, even no, no, talking no. about her as a as an individual. Just yeah. talking about the fact two photographers yeah. who are married together because yeah. that's actually I think can well, be tough. It's, right? it's, if you're not doing collaborative work, which right. it's true in not. in any creative field that you know if two artists or mm-hmm. writers or actors or there's a, a little bit of a built-in competition that you have to deal with if if one is having some kind of success and the other isn't and yeah. it can go you know no it's interesting cuz i think we were really you know at least i was competitive at that that younger age and one of the things that i wanted to mention was i must have matured a little bit because i think we've really we've grown into something different where we have different interests in the in the medium and you know, for instance, she her work really revolves around nature. You know, she's right now she's, you know, scanning bark and making large scale prints of that and the trails of in that insects and size and to bark. And, you know, I'm photographing the physical street in Los Angeles. So, you know, we have such a different vision and such a different aesthetic and different issues that that drive our work. And that actually and, might help yeah. because you're not like knocking each other out of the right, way, right? Right. You know, like, and we're we're able to look at each other's work. Yeah. yeah, we're able to look <laughs> we're able to look at each other's work with a different different perspective and kind of provide that for each other. So that's interesting. We share a studio 
And so, you know, our work is there side by side and we share some materials, but the work that we make is really different from each other. And then also Kate's very involved in commercial work and editorial assignments. And it's something that, you know, I'll do the occasional commission and, you know, I, w- I would love to do that sort of work. I'm just not built for it the way that, that she is. You also um, have a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, I do have a full-time job. And actually we both have full-time jobs teaching. So she's full-time at Parsons and I'm full-time at Pratt as the chair of the department there. Yeah. And so we should talk about that too. I'd love to. Yeah. yeah. I'd so love after, to talk after about Pratt. Tulane, uh, mm-hmm. you've been in, you were at Tulane for those years and then you transitioned straight from Tulane to being, becoming the chair of the photography department at, at Pratt, right? Was there, was, I don't remember there being a downtime in between. Was no, there? I went, I went yeah. right from one to another. Actually, Jeff Rosenheim was down in New Orleans giving a talk on Lee Friedlander's jazz photographs that were up in, an, in the museum at Tulane in an exhibition that I organized with the Newcomb Art Gallery and the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane. These beautiful um, pictures from the 50s and early 60s taken by Lee Friedlander of jazz musicians, mostly in their homes, sometimes in clubs. And Jeff came down and he said, you know, how do you like it down here? And Jeff went to Tulane. He received his MFA at Tulane. And his wife, Kelly, is from New Orleans. So, And Jeff used to work at the historic New Orleans collection. And so he really, you know, loves the city, rooted in the city. And he said, how do you like it here? And I said, you know, I, I, I really love it. I love Tulane. Well, you were living a work, schizophrenic existence. At but that I point. miss my family. Yeah, because um, Kate was still here in Brooklyn right. and you were going back and forth, right? Yeah. And he said, oh, that's, 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 you should see something. And he had just gotten a message from, from uh, you know, a mass email or something from, from Pratt announcing the position. He said, you should try for this. And I said, okay. And I tried hard and it all worked out. And it's been really great being at Pratt, being back at Brooklyn work with some great people, some fascinating students. I've worked at a lot of different schools and I'm in awe of the work ethic of these students and working around the clock, having an extended conversation about the world through their their pictures and their videos and you know, it's a really interdisciplinary group. They're they're thinking a lot more about, you know, the photograph and the physical space. We have wonderful colleagues because you you went to, you know, these liberal arts schools, mm-hmm. you were never, I, I mean, I went to the school, the Museum of Fine Arts, I was around the art school people, and and this is a new environment for you, right? Yes, I it mean, was my first time at art school. Yeah, it's, it's which very I think different. Which I it's it's very different. I think the challenge of art school... The expectations of the students and where they're going right. is different. Well, the I think there's things a, that they do are different. I mean. Exactly, Kai. I think there's a, a lot of expectation of a professional acumen. And to really you know, get to know the medium technically and conceptually beyond what's possible in a liberal arts situation, but at the same time have that general education of liberal arts and science. And it's a challenge. And, and, you know, you're entering this venerable, historic photographic institution, not being promoted from within the inside. Mm -hmm. And and so you must have come in and, and seen things that uh, and I'm, I don't mean this as a criticism, but see, you know, so here's where we are. Here's where I'd like to go. And right. what kind of things and changes? I mean, what did you what do you think you've brought in terms of um, the environment and what's being taught and, right. and things like that? Well, there is a really rich history there from Gertrude Casebeer, 
studying there in the late 19th century through, you know, William Gedney was the late great William Gedney was both a student and professor at Pratt. And there's just, there's just so much history there. Uh, Tom Roma, uh, who, who you all know, but your, your listeners may not know was a photography technician in the department during a very rich moment. Um, yeah, he always talks very highly of his yeah, time. He at loved Pratt. that time. Yeah. It's like he met. I mean, he met everybody within like yeah. three weeks. That yeah. became like such important parts of his life. Yeah. And I think that I came into Pratt at a really interesting time, where despite the long history of photography there, photography had always been part of a larger department, whether it was the media arts department or the photography or the film and photography department, and it hadn't really been allowed to um, come into its own. So I came in really with that charge to work with the students and faculty in the school to really elevate the visibility of what was happening there. That's certainly been the case. I mean, between the lecture series, uh, even notifications about the BFA shows. Right. Uh, did they used to do the books from the BFA shows You know, before, there was or? a history of doing the books, and we brought that back. I think that... Yeah. It's one of those things where I think, you know, probably programs used to do catalogs more and then I'm guessing due to cost they stopped doing it. But as we know, there's there's a way to, um, you know, work with... Um, yeah, a way to get things done more. To, to get things done more, more efficiently and at a smaller scale. And our students have, um, the last few years... Um, this year, they've, they've worked with uh, Christina Laby of Conveyor to produce a beautiful book that will be available at their group thesis show on May 10th at the Pratt Manhattan Gallery. Um, last year, the students worked with Ed Pinar and Melissa Cantonese of Spaces Corners. So in both of those cases with Conveyor and with Spaces Corners, the students are working with these you know, really interesting and innovative um, small photo publishers. And the year before that, they worked with photographer Justine Kurland to edit and sequence the book. So We've really, you know, in addition to our core faculty, which had included Paul McDonough until he retired early this, earlier this year, and John Lair and Anna Steinschlager and Peter K. Office and many other, um, you know, some really brilliant photographers. I just lost my train of thought. That's all right. No, it's just part of You're how, right on it. Yeah. 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 And, and I think we could even talk about that that was one part of the transition yeah. and now there's this whole new thing happening with right. the MFA program, right? Yeah, no, it's true. So we are working on, again, making more visible the relatively small MFA program that has existed there, but it hasn't had a direct relationship as much as it should with the undergraduate program. So we're on expanding the that side or on all, the photography side. Yeah. And so that's something that um, stay tuned. We're going to launch in fall 2018 and, we're really excited about that. But I remembered what I was going to say because I was talking about the rich core faculty we have. But we're also really interested in broadening that as much as we can in the city and also internationally to, you know, bring people to work with the students, bring people to sh to um, to have a conversation with the students through the lecture series. Uh, earlier this week, we had Lyle Ashton Harris, who is just a is a brilliant artist and he's in the Venice Biennial now. He just won a Guggenheim and he came he met with five students he gave a knock your socks off lecture that just devastated everyone it was so wonderful and um, you know meeting with the students and just having that conversation that interesting conversation about photography and having it at 
Pratt, but also having it publicly. That's what we're all about. We're all about supporting the students in their work, but making sure that they're able to understand the context within which they're making the work. That's both a historical and a contemporary context. And, you know, as they learn to have a critical distance between the work that's being, you know, shown in galleries, spoken about at lectures, published in books, and trying to kind of understand their position to that, that helps them understand their own position about their own work. So that's that's one of the things we're yeah, trying to you, do. You really have a fantastic lecture series, and I always talk it up to my students at yeah. Mercer. And, All are welcome. Yeah. Uh, occasional Wednesday nights in Brooklyn. Yeah. I, I think Pratt is also perfectly positioned to to be able to take advantage of like quote unquote new Brooklyn in a way too. I mean, in 1990, when I was looking at colleges, when I was leaving uh, North Carolina school of the arts, we had representatives from all these schools come down. And I remember the Pratt representative coming down and they gave a great presentation. It sounded interesting, but you know, the back channel to us in North Carolina was, Mm. Oh yeah. Pratt is uh, you, you have, you can't leave campus. If you do, you'll get mugged, you know, (laughs) And right. now it's like, oh, it's campus is beautiful and you walk right. around and you can go out and get, you know, there's like all this stuff going on around it. You can go walk to the park. You know, it's like, it's very different. Yeah, I think a lot has changed in the last 20 years, last 10 years. And it's just, it's really the cultural capital of New York City. And, you know, in close proximity, tons of artists, lots of galleries popping up, you know, and um, it's just it's just a really great place to be. And of course, you know, you have Brooklyn, but you also have greater New York City. And we just think, you know, it's a great place to, you know, launch to Williamsburg, too, or to Long Island City, too, or lower Manhattan or Midtown, too, all in, you know, 25 to 30 minutes. So yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I love being there. I, I, I know this from teaching down at Mercer and when I started there in 2005, I had students who had never been to New York because their parents didn't want them to go to New mm-hmm. York. I mean, that was 2005. And right. It takes about a half a generation for the myth of a place to, to change. Right. No, it's true. The thing that I, I was going to bring up, a question I had written down, but you've you've already alluded to in several different ways, is that in talking about maybe the difference between an art school and uh, liberal arts is that it's clear from references you made to other people's writings, and uh, of course you mentioned Walter Benjamin uh, earlier, uh, that there there's an interest on the intellectual side of like this the discourse and the things that are written around you know Buclo, uh, Krauss, and uh, and you also did the Whitney Independent Study Program, right, which is always like known to be like almost like a reading group for artists, right? right? It, it absolutely is. It's a and you and you write about things. So can you talk I about that aspect of your of your practice? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's something that I think probably had some some roots at Columbia as an undergraduate and going through the curriculum there, and of course through the the great books of the core curriculum, you know, those first two books, Illid and the Odyssey, mm-hmm. you know, one's about war, <laughs> one's about a journey. What else do you need to know? Yeah. And um, the, fl- the first flaneur. <laughs> right. But really a rigorous um, education. And, um, you know, I've always been, I've been interested in writing. I've been interested in the relationship between photography and writing. I mean, I've been interested in how my photographs, how Back Up Town um, is, a, is a document. And I think of it, you know, no different as a as a as a written document and a visual document they're they're really similar and um you know i think in grad school at columbia that was further 
reinforced, you know, just having a conversation with people that wasn't purely visual. It was also about the content, about the work and the context in which the work was made. And that context exists in books and in films and in papers and in pop culture and on Instagram and <laughs> in all these places. And I had applied to the Whitney ISP between undergrad and grad school was rejected. I I then applied after right at, as I was graduating from I mean I kind of Columbia. Joke, I joke yeah. that, that it's the third year. It's like that's yeah, it Columbia's is the third, third year because at least two to three people every year go right. to the ISP after they graduate. It's great if you could do it and it's a combination of you know what they call studio artists although I don't think all of them are necessarily working in the studio like a painter works in their studio, probably quite the opposite. At the time, architects, which I think is no longer part of the current program, but that was an interesting element, um, working with Anthony Vidler, who was at the time at Cooper Union and a group of architects, um, curators and um, art historians and critics, and we're all together in a reading group. We would meet twice a week. We were encouraged to spend as much time in our, our studio in Chinatown as we could, but we would meet twice a week. I think it was, I don't remember the date, Tuesdays we would have our reading group, and Thursdays we would have guest lecturers. And, you know, I think there's a there's a kind of a, a staple of, of um, artists and thinkers that come through there from... Alan Sekula and Isaac Julian and Benjamin Buklo and Spivak and Hal Foster. And so it was this incredible opportunity to experience these, these, these thinkers and these writers firsthand uh, through discussion of texts. And I think it's, it's something that, um, you know, has, has informed my work and um, it's something that um, I think I've tried to, also bring an influence to the the program at Pratt and um, you know I'm not the only one my colleagues around me in photography and in other departments have really been trying to underscore the importance of writing in art making and not thinking about writing as something that comes after art making always but you know not thinking about that manufactured press release uh, press release esque statement what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring in the connection, the relationship between writing and photography. And um, yeah, it's something that uh, that I love to do. I've been thinking about it a little bit more lately. I've been doing a little bit more writing. Um, I recently wrote about Anthony Hernandez, who is you know, one of the great 20th century photographers, one of the great LA photographers and who another mentor lab. who came and did, did a, a lecture series talk, conversation yeah. at, at Pratt. And, um, are you writing for someone or, you know, that, I'm just that's on vice, writing, isn't it? Writing here and there. That is, um, there's, there's something forthcoming. And there was, uh, was a discussion we did that was on bomb. Oh, bomb. That's right. And so that was, you know, I really enjoy being able to think about things, think about photography and think about, the issues, you know, from the outside, again, I think. I mean, I think it's, um, the struggle is to write about your own work, though. 
Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know, that, those are very recent. But then uh, uh, another former guest on the podcast, uh, Tony Chirinos, oh, right. you wrote the, the text for his book, uh, I did. which I just, it's Rest in Peace, I think, but I don't, it's, right. but it's and, the, and the Latin, Latin yeah. it's the Latin or something. It's, Right. Sorry, that Tony. Was, it's something yeah. in pace. I enjoyed doing that, and I, I had, I had, I was thinking about Tony on my way up here, and we were thick as thieves together. But he, and he gave me the opportunity to write about his work when um, he had a, a a show and a publication, and yeah, it was great to step into that role. And I think with that particular text, I really had had a lot of fun because I think there was this really kind of magic space that exists in that in that work. Requiem. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, is that it? Yeah, isn't is that it Requiem something? in Pace? Yeah, oh, I think yeah. Requiem in Pace. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah his, For the record, uh, his Michael obsession, did not Google that. That's his, right. <laughs> his obsession with, with, uh, with mortality and, right. um, you know, the, the cold steel of the, mm-hmm. of the gurneys with, imbued with the light of his flash was, was worth writing about. And, uh, you know, so I want to just wrap up the bit about the ISP and mm-hmm. the writing and, and uh, everything to say that a lot of the work of the of the yeah, photographers and or visual artists that I know that have that go through uh, <coughs> the program or how that influences their work, it's usually that the work is much more dry and or much more uh, dependent upon the text to decode. Mm. Whereas I don't see any of that in your photographs. Your photographs are very much uh, that the delight of and the the meaning of is wrapped up in the photographs themselves. You're still going out and wanting to make photographs that stand on their own. Right. right. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing about a text, a philosophical text or an art historical text is that it's going to cite other texts and have footnotes, so to speak, of texts and ideas that have come before and will sort of build on those texts. And I think of my photographs as a text in that way, too, as, you know, being partially grown out of my, uh, in a huge way, grown out of my, more than partially, in a huge way, my tech, my, my photographs come out of my experience looking at the world, but they also come from, you know, the texts, the photographs that have come before. So now we're going to jump back to the west coast and um uh, why don't you paint a little bit of a picture i mean we haven't asked you anything about you like how come you why are you born in la what are your parents doing that are out there yeah that's a that's your a mother you question. said was from my, new york my, my oh. mother's from new york city my dad's from indiana they both headed out there in the circa the early 60s and you know, so they missed I was the summer of love. There. They didn't go to San Francisco. They went to L.A. Yeah. Well, my dad started in San Francisco, came back down. My mom went to college in Los Angeles, and uh, you know, that's I was born into that. Um, thought um, started thinking about L.A. as a place after leaving it. I started really longing to be there and thinking about it. I think it was in college I was that occasional trip back and forth, that trip home after the year, after the whole year has passed and flying into Los Angeles and seeing it a little differently, seeing it above and then again that drive home, seeing things changed and 
that that time and that um, speeding up of time that happens over the course of a whole year, it started to to make me really interested in in Los Angeles. And after Columbia, I came back to Los Angeles and I built a dark room in my grandmother's house. Oh, so your grandmother was yeah. there too. My grandmother was there too. She right. followed my mother out there. Okay. And I started photographing in my grandmother's house and I photographed there for probably four or five. Well, I, I photographed there for the three years I was in Los Angeles. I started photographing there probably as a student at Columbia. And I think there was a picture I took of my grandmother's bed with the covers not completely kempt and the light left on and a note on the bed from my mother and a portable toilet rolled out into the room and it was actually right right here not in this room but in a room like it at columbia where i saw it on the wall and we had some sort of conversation but i realized there was something there in that picture and i started to see what was there that I hadn't really seen when I photographed. I mean, I think I was just taking a picture of a room in a sense. And I didn't really know what was there. I mean, I think unconsciously at some level I did. But I then knew I wanted to photograph in my grandmother's house. And I was thinking, you know, the influence of the Columbia education and perhaps overthinking it. I was thinking about... Filled with Eugene. art history and exactly. everything. Exactly. I was thinking about At Jay's Parisian interiors. And I thought... I would make some series of pictures in her house that depicted each room in a somewhat pulled back but categorizing way. What I then did was completely different from that. But I photographed you know, the comings and goings of the things in her life, you know, leaving a brush at the table, leaving a half-eaten candy bar at the table, the garden growing, the garden being you know tended to and not tended to and the women that as she grew older and older took care of her as her nurses and you know made a serious body of of work and it was obviously looking inward into into my world and after after she passed away i was looking for something else to, to photograph. And at this point, I'm in grad school. But I'm still did you photographing. Did you apply to grad school with that work? I did apply to grad school with that work. Okay. And it was probably my, it, it was what I would call my first mature body of work. And there's different phases of it. I actually started photographing in black and white, moved into color negative from there into ectochrome, from there back to black and white, making photogravures, and there's using Polaroids, all sorts of different chapters of this work. And is she is she present in a lot of the work? She is present in some of the work. And that was something that, that's a great question. That was something that was important to me as I was editing the work, that she was present, because it was a portrait of her through the patterns of absence and presence in the house. But I didn't feel right about not showing her. And then there were other things that I also was uncomfortable with not showing. Like there were people that worked in the house. There was a gardener. There was a housekeeper. There, were, there was a nurse on the weekend and there was a nurse during the week. 
And it became important for me to show them. And, but then of course, you know, with photographing anyone is like, how do you depict these people? Like what's the relationship that I'm presenting between making visible between myself and them and between the audience and them. So when she passed away, I wasn't quite sure what to do because I was so immersed in that project. And I had other projects I was doing, but I also wanted to, I wanted to continue that project, but of course I could. So there were some things I did, like I photographed every drawer in her house with a Polaroid of what was left in it. And it was this last gasp of trying to mark down what was there. But I ended up walking out of the house into an alley and photographing in the alley. And these were panoramic pictures that I was making with the panorama that Tom built. And I ha we had a camera at Columbia that we had convinced Tom to track down. And I just started photographing in the streets in the alleys behind the behind the house and she lived in beverly hills and so you know we think about the fronts of these houses and the circular driveways and the manicured lawns and bushes and trees and this attempt at grand architecture because it's really a dressed up suburb but people think of it as something sort of more important than it is somehow i think through media like it gets a lot of attention but anyway we it's think it's of the part front of the marketing it's yeah part it's of part the of the marketing of, of everything of the the movie industry everything it's right exactly so it's this it's this place that we that some of us might desire to be and there's this image there that's that's broadcast from the front i found myself in the back i wasn't really sure why and I just photographed and photographed and photographed in this grid of, 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 of streets, of alleys behind the house. And it was interesting because there were a lot of things about these streets. They were in the back, but not in the front. They were public, but they weren't on a map. They were public, but they were patrolled by police and security. And so there are these really protected spaces. And I over time, what I realized was that the work was about, I think, that hidden political significance that I was talking about earlier. You know, it was essentially the service entrance. It was the way for the gardeners, the poolmen, the attendants to traditionally get into these homes through the back door. So I think that I was interested in making a document of that space, of that infrastructure. But at the same time, I was photographing really generously exposing the film, the color negative film, and really making those silver halides like big and through that exposure and printing light and looking into the sun and trying to be really expressive with the work. And then just because I felt like doing that and then looking back at it, I think through conversation with people, I realized like, of course, it's a work about mourning. It's a work about, you know, mourning my grandmother who was a very important figure for me who helped raise me and I grew up with her and, you know, she provided me with a, with a lot. She sent me to Columbia. She did all those things that made my life possible. And so I moved from the house 
to the neighborhood. Then I move to the hotel as far as the work I'm doing. So I keep going out. Right. But photographing a place in Los Angeles and then the place in New Orleans. And there's some things in between, but these are the major preoccupations. And there was also a time where I was photographing a lot in Los Angeles and the work didn't become as finished, but I, I had been photographing these markers in the landscape of change, but in a more symbolic way, like a blue tarp over a fence that indicates like there's something happening behind the fence. And even the, what do they call it? The snow fences and things like that. And I was making some Super 8 videos and some photographs of all of this and accumulating this archive of Los Angeles. And it started off again in the neighborhood of Beverly Hills and also in the neighborhood around the Ambassador Hotel, which you could call Los Angeles or you could call Koreatown. And since then, recently, about two or three years ago, I got the bug again to photograph L.A. And I think it, was, I think it had to do with really getting some closure with the work in New Orleans, even though I had been away from New Orleans, working on the book, editing the work, seeing that work from a distance, distilling that work, editing that down, and actually discarding certain types of pictures and moving further out and wanting to apply some of that visual vocabulary to LA, going through the archive, printing work, and making new work. And I've been photographing now in LA for the last year and a half or so, streets in Los Angeles that initially were streets that I passed by a million times, like Wilshire Boulevard. I mean, I passed by, I, I passed by the ambassador a million times and I never really noticed it. But now I'm really looking really hard as I go down Sunset Boulevard, Beverly Boulevard, La Cienega Boulevard, Sepulveda, mostly boulevards, Sepulveda, Sepulveda yeah, fascinating street. Sepulveda's amazing. And the signage there and the transition there and the utilitarian nature of that street. And thinking a lot about what these streets are and thinking a lot about the different types of neighborhoods and how they're marked by streets and looking for signals in the landscape. One signal I can remember yeah. is they've got a photograph where uh, ostensibly it's a, a bench, probably a bus mm -hmm. stop bench, mm -hmm. and there's someone who looks like they must be homeless, but right. there's someone covered up in a blanket laying down on the bench with their possessions next to the bench, you know, a couple of bags right. and some shoes or whatever. But the in the background is a uh, a business that says uh, I wrote it down because it's funny uh, funny to me it was laser laser mm -hmm. for toenail it says right, so right. it must be like you know using lasers for some sort of right. podiatry thing but right. lasers you know that seemed L.A. to me and uh, but then the bench the person's on is also for Cedar Sinai. And so it's right. just like, you know, laser the hospital. Yeah, the hospital, laser toe, and then this and, and then a and guy it's the hospital the where bench. I was born. Oh, bonus. Um and you know, that's that's a tough picture for me actually, because I think that um you know, it's just it's it depicts a situation that I just don't really know myself and I don't wanna exploit the situation, but I also don't wanna shy away from it and you know, that's it's actually part of all a of picture. these warm, American right. warm yeah. cities. That's a part of the nature of them. The though, homelessness right? 
Um, and being in Los Angeles where, you know, more and more homeless, one of the changes you see when you go to LA is there's just more and more homeless people. And it used to be in certain sections of town, but it's really kind of spilled over and you see all sorts of tents and encampments and people under bridges and it's really indivisible. So I can't deny it visually. And, um, at the same time, I want to be sensitive to it but there's you know that picture is actually taken from a car stopped at a red light so you can see in the foreground of the picture you can see this the the kind of top of the you could see the top of the um car door you know where the window begins and you know there's that that indication that it's out the window and i'm thinking a lot about you know moving through these cities and and what do you see as you move through them and what else moves through the cities and i think the 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 work, I feel like it's the beginning of something, and I don't completely know what it is, but I'm very interested in continuing to go down different roads and, and streets. I found a map that was from my grandmother's house, and I think it's probably from the 60s, and I think it's a good place to start as mm. far as the... What's highlighted. Yeah, the economical nature of the map and the sort of roads that are there, and I'm sure that there's made, I'm sure there's roads that aren't there that exist now, and I might get to those later. I might get to those earlier roads first and see you know, the layers that are there and kind of what's shifted, and they were roads were built there for certain reasons, of you know getting a certain kind of class of people from one place to another to work in a different neighborhood and you know it was all the roads um in los angeles of course the public transportation is a later development you grew Um, up in la right right through high school right yes and you know so it's it's i don't think it's unusual you have this interest in how temporary the nature of things are growing up in a place Mm -hmm. that can't remember its own history right Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, you, you mentioned the, um, the, the, these monoliths that you photographed or these places that are the markers for you in a way. And, and they're all photographed in a state of disappearing yes. in some one way or another and all. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, you're, you are bringing this LA experience to your photography right. and your life there. I mean, so, I mean, let's go, let's just go back a little bit when, what, what brought your parents to LA? Was it the business? Was it the... Well, I think um, my 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 mom went to college there, and my dad, I think, for work. But it wasn't it wasn't around any Hollywood business or anything like that. I grew up around that. There were friends that I went to school with that were part of that world through their their parents and even through their own participation in it. At this point, um, and you know, loved going to the movies. I mean, that was something every Friday after school in elementary school, I walked with a pack of kids to Westwood Village to see the movies. And there were tons of movie theaters there. There's less there now. Um, and so that's probably a huge part of my knowledge of the world comes from those <laughs> sure. movies. But yeah, of yeah. course, it's film. Yeah. Of course, you know, it's something that it's it's pictures that are made in a carefully laid out rectangle. Scenes. Yes. <laughs> And so I think that the the influence is definitely there. And I I love trivia about films. And I love mm-hmm. thinking about places where certain mm-hmm. films were made. And I have my favorite L.A. films like The Long Goodbye um, by Robert Altman and 
you know, I'm always looking for those places mm. and not really to make a picture, but just because right. I'm, I'm curious yeah. of what's there. Uh, but uh, another thing that struck me, again, going back to like warm climate cities, New Orleans, I, I lived, uh, I never lived in New Orleans, but family from there. I lived, my father's from Austin, Austin, right. Texas, which it doesn't look like LA, but has similar sort of things about like the warm city, of course, homelessness we were talking about. Right. But also like culture, like the music industry there right. versus the the uh, film industry, and another thing, looking at those photographs that you have now on your website, which you recently mm -hmm. updated, are you have two different photographs with um, uh, newspaper vending machines, mm -hmm. and that is something that really it's like not something we never see in New York, right? It's right. Like, it's when I saw those, I was like, instantly remembered them in Austin. Like there was ways of like you as a kid, you'd learn how to like push the return Jerry thing and get, to get them to pop open and like, you know, or, or right. put in 50 cents and take out five papers to sell. Right. That, and, and that also reminds me of my older brother, James, sorry, James, but he used to have a mechanism where he could make a, a free call on a payphone. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> so those, the phones and the newspaper boxes, yeah, they're part of the, the landscape and they may exist in other places, but, it seems like it's something, particularly those newspaper boxes in, in Los Angeles and something I remember and something actually that I've been looking back at some photographs in the archive that I can, I can see in the distance or in the foreground and I'm interested in looking at those pictures. But I remember rows and rows of them and I don't see those rows so much anymore. I see more kind of singular, but they're these fixtures. They're bolted into the ground and yeah. they do tell an interesting story because they're palimpsests of of history there they they have you know a marker from the herald tribune or the los angeles examiner and then those papers are gone and maybe it was the la times and then maybe there's a korean daily maybe there's a, a spanish daily um there's a lot of um uh newspaper that's called the Hollywood X Press, which is this rag that has like numbers for call girls and things. And that's all over. It seems like a lot of them have been taken over by that. And people leave them, they use them as trash cans and use them as handoff places and uh, use them as toilets and the same, same as these phones. And so they still have a use. They don't have the original use. I'm kind of interested in that. I think there's elements with those particular pieces of street furniture that are about these things that are changing and disappearing. But overall, and that's an aspect of my work in photography that's existed for the past really almost 20 years now. But I think that there's something else in this in this project that's also more about not just things that are changing, but also more consciousness about that present moment or that infrastructure, or also getting really interested in the formal elements of the color. Like there's certain colors that are really popping up in the work a lot. For some reason, there's a lot of green. Uh, I was doing something similar to this in LA a few years ago, and it was a lot of blue and my blue period and my green period. And, but I'm just thinking about the formal elements in the frame a lot more than I have in the past. And so it's new to me and I'm you know, just wanting to do it more and more. All right. Well, just one last question. 
And we'll wrap up here. Uh, who is Dennis that you dedicate your book to? Yeah, Dennis is, is Kate's father, my father-in-law. And um, he um, passed away uh, in the time I was living in New Orleans. And I was thinking a lot about about him when I was making the work. And he was really um, supportive. And uh, he loved New Orleans. And um, I think that, you know, he had a hard time at the end and the um had an illness and the um i feel like there was uh a mirror for me in the in the decline of um the neighborhood that was uh biological and you know it was like a like a sick um place that couldn't really get better and and died and um so i think it's for that metaphorical reason but also because he was an important person in my life so i dedicate back a town to dennis nice well, thank you very much. This has thank been a you. fantastic this conversation. This has been a Thanks pleasure. I love talking to you guys and everything that you asked me and everything you added and mainly hearing all the places that Kai's lived. <laughs> That's <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Can we get a piece of pizza now? Yes. yes. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.